If we were to turn the clock back 400 years from 2022, that would take us back to the 1600s, early 1600s. That would take us back to a time in America when the Pilgrims and the Puritans, particularly the Puritans, were the guiding voices of the nation. The Puritans who were laying the foundation for our country back in the early 1600s and all through that century and continuing on then in the next century, even up through the time of the War of Independence, the Puritan footprint could be felt profoundly across this country, and even today. Now hold on closely to your seats. Most everything that you can find that's noble, that's good, that's marvelous and wonderful, that might be left in this great country is derived from the worldview, the biblical worldview of the Puritans. I just made a significant statement. So what I would like for us to do today is to go back in time and see how the Puritans managed their lives. How did they handle life? Because that's what you and I are living now. We're living out our lives, albeit in a very different world than the Puritans, but in many ways, un not unlike the Puritans who faced a very rigorous, harsh life in the eastern, New Eastern, uh, New England seaboard, they faced perils unspeakable. And so do we. We face a different kind of peril in our generation. We're not busy trying to fi figure out how we're going to keep warm or what we're going to eat and I don't think we're worried about being scalped by some savage. But we have our own set of problems, church, and they're enormous. And ours is more a battle of the mind and the heart. To stay close to our Father in heaven and to live in the trust and in the confidence in the assurance and in the peace to know that God will not forsake His people under any consideration, in any time of peril, God is still God. And it doesn't change the nature of the promise that He made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Because God is unchanging. He is unchangeable. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. As we read in Hebrews 13 verse 8. So we have a, a new set of problems. But it's the same spiritual fortitude and belief system that the Puritans embraced that will guide us through the treacherous waters of the sea of life that we're now sailing in the 21st century here in this country. And for that matter, Israelites around the earth. So I, I ask you today, can we journey back and examine a little bit of the Puritan 
worldview that might assist us and arm us and prepare us for the world that we're living in in the 21st century. It's my humble belief, church, that when you walk through the doors of this sanctuary, that you have every right to believe and assume that you will hear something from the pulpit that will be worth your time. Now, that places a terrific weight on the shoulders of whoever is standing behind this pulpit. So let's pray. God, our Father, we make our way to your throne room this morning. Thou that dwellest between the cherubims, with all the holy angels, all the, the cherubims and the seraphims, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. Father, it is only through the meritorious goodness of Jesus Christ that we are able to approach your throne. So we plead now, in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ, that you would look upon the assembly of your people here today at the Church of Israel, Southwest Missouri, and upon your covenant people, Israelite believers who live all across the hinterlands of this nation and beyond the Atlantic, throughout Europe and Scandinavia, and north into Canada, and across the Pacific into Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, and wherever your covenant people descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Germanic, Scandinavian, Slavic peoples of Europe have settled on this planet. Merciful God, look upon the remnant of your people and grant us encouragement. Grant us courage, O Lord my God, that we may be strong and courageous people and that we may face the present as well as the future as God-fearing, Bible-believing, blood-washed, spirit-filled, sin-hating, devil-chasing, God-fearing men and women, boys and girls that love Jesus Christ and are willing to stand for His truth in a time of great evil. O great God in heaven, through the meritorious goodness of your Son, guide this lesson, and we de de dedicate it and devote it to thee, and to the everlasting nature of your kingdom. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray, in the name of Christ our Savior, amen. The Puritans are famous for their ability to advance a biblical worldview in everyday life. Their biblical worldview was reflected in everything they did. Every part of their life was reflected by their biblical worldview. They did not just simply attend a church service and park their worldview when they left the service. They lived every day by the faith that they embraced. And every child that grew up in a Puritan home grew up with this worldview so that the entire American scene in the 1600s, in the 1700s particularly, and beyond into the next centuries, reflected a biblical worldview in so many ways and we are still running on the vapor that's left from all they put in the spiritual tank. Everything good about America today is residual from that vast period of history when the Puritans and their descendants and those who followed them in the next generations lived on the soil of America. So what I'd like to do today is take one little slice of Puritan life 
and see how we can apply it to the world that we live in. The Puritans were Reformed Christians. Now, for the benefit of those who may not know what the word Reformed means, it's just the opposite of Arminianism. For the benefit of those who may not be clear on what Arminianism is, Arminianism versus Reformed thinking can be reduced down to a common statement. If you're Reformed, if you have a Reformed view of history, you believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, that God is in charge of all things, that He is the ruler over nations and kingdoms, that God puts up one and takes down another, that God is always in charge of the world that He created, a world that He sustains, a world that He preserves, a world that he, will, that he will one day judge. And beyond that, you believe that God does the choices. God chooses who will be the elect. God is in charge of the world He created in Reformed thinking. If you're Arminian you leave a lot of latitude for human thinking. You do the choosing. You choose Christ. And when you have chosen Him, you let Him know in confession. In Reformed thinking, God doesn't ask you if you want to be a Christian. He calls you out of darkness, out of the blindness of Satan's kingdom. He opens your eyes, He quickens you, He calls you, He convicts your heart. And God, the great initiator of your faith, will ultimately lead you to repentance, confession of your sin, to a faith in Christ, so that at the end of your salvation walk, you may say, you may look to heaven and say, by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, by sola scriptura alone, to the glory of God alone, I am a Christian. I made no choice in the matter. I am solely by the grace of God, making my journey as a Christian in this world. And what God chose, and what Jesus Christ paid for, by His own blood, He will not lose. If God chose me, if God paid for my sin by His own blood, He purchased me with His blood, then what Jesus has bought and paid for, He cannot lose. But if we do the choosing, if I choose, I can lose. I have no assurance that if I make a choice to be a Christian, that I will not lose my faith. But I know that if I'm trusting in a sovereign God, who before the foundation of the world made a choice of who he would save, he will not lose what he has bought and paid for. The Puritans believed in foreknowledge. They believed in foreknowledge. They believed in Election, they leave, believed in predestination. They believed that everyone was pursuing a destiny. A God-ordained destiny. So, even though the Puritans take a bad rap by many, there's a lot of people that like to level their 
guns at the Puritans. And not every Puritan was always the best. But America has been greatly blessed by the Puritans who laid the foundation. And we will be well served to go back and take a little bit of their biblical worldview out of this building this morning or just remind ourselves of what we already had, but how important it is. So I'd like to review this one little part of Puritan thinking because it's very relevant. How did the Puritans view biblical law? Now we know that we love the law here. We know that the law is part of God's eternal character. We could no more take the law and discard it than we could discard God himself <clears throat> because the law is part of who God is. We cannot divorce the law from the God who ordained it, gave it, thought it up. It's part of who God is. And it's always going to be a part of who we are if we're Christian. We'll never dispense with God's law. But we have a question of how to apply it. And the Puritans were famous because they considered love to God and love of the law inseparable. Love of God and love of the law were inseparable truths to the Puritans. From their point of view, you could not possibly love God without loving his law. Nor could you love law without loving the author of the law, God himself. So the life and worldview of the Puritans married law and love together. Inseparable parts of one whole. And I think that in America today, we have lost in so many of our churches the idea of the inseparable nature of law and love. So we have millions and millions of Christians, most of them Arminian, not all by any means, but so many millions of believers in our generation have such little respect for God's law. Because they've been taught essentially that in the death of Jesus, Jesus paid the price for, for our sin and therefore the law has done its work. And the law has no abiding application in how we live out our lives day by day and year by year. So let's go look at how the Puritans were able to marry law and love. Now, this is not my area of theology, so I probably will struggle a little bit, but I'm going to try and explain it this way. Did you know most of the conflict that arises in our own personal lives, most of the problems that arise that cause us problems in a marriage or in a family in general, or problems that arise in a church body or in a community at large, or even in a nation like America, for example, it arises because of a root cause of our inability to define and manage rights and responsibilities and expectations. 
So how did the Puritans apply law and God's love to the concept of rights, responsibilities, and expectations? Now, if we were to leave the Bible and leave this congregation and examine contemporary America, we would find that America has morphed into a very humanist nation because we honestly have millions demanding rights without any responsibility to have earned those rights. We have millions and millions of people with high expectations of what they believe the world owes them. And they're very unhappy if their demands are not met. The whole problem in America today is an out-of-order interpretation of rights, responsibilities, and expectations. Now, when they wrote our Declaration of Independence, it was written primarily by Thomas Jefferson with the aid of a little bit of other minds. But there's a statement in the Declaration that says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, inalienable rights that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Now, my job here today is not to dissect what Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence, but it needs a careful examination for sure. But when you open the Bible, and you go back to Puritan theology, you find that the Puritan mindset was, God owes me nothing. The world owes me nothing. I am here by God's grace, and all the gifts and talents that I possess are gifts from my Creator, and with His help, I am here to take what God has given me, what God has dealt to me, and everyone has dealt a different hand. But I'm going to take the intelligence, I'm going to take the gifts that God has accorded me, and to the glory of my God, I am determined to make the best of all that God has given me, that he might be glorified because the Puritans believed that we existed for the glory of God, that the purpose of life was to glorify God and to be a witness of God. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate for his life and Pilate had asked him, if he were a king, I'm in John 18, 36. Jesus had said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered unto the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. And Pilate answered and said, art thou therefore then a king? And Jesus answered Pilate and said, Thou sayest that I am a king, but to this end was I born, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Jesus came to bear witness of the truth. And that was the mindset of the Puritans, that they were here, as representatives and ambassadors of God to bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, to the record of the Bible, 
and to all things pertaining to godliness. So the Puritans believed that we arrived into this world as sinners. That we were spiritually dead and passive toward God. That our souls were depraved. And that our bodies were given essentially over to the lust of the flesh. And that without being rescued from that condition, our only right was to live and to die and be judged for the sin that we were born with. So they had no great exalted idea that they arrived from the mother's womb with great and marvelous rites. I cannot validate where anything that the pilgrims believed about rites could be found in the French Declaration of Rights or in the American Declaration of Rights because the Puritans had a view that all rights derived from God are God's business and that we are the recipients of the rights that God has given us. And that those rights are dependent upon how others fill their responsibilities. That rights are derived from the responsibilities that are fulfilled under God's law. And that our expectations should be built from Psalm 62 verse 5. So I'd like to read that verse for you from the psalmist David, chapter number 62, verse 5. This will be a good verse to hold on to, to have it marked in your Bible. Psalm 65, verse 2 reads this way. It says, My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. Now that's quite a statement because it's saying that if you're a married person, don't live with a focus on what you expect from your spouse. Rather, focus on your responsibility to the person you married. The Puritan mindset is to focus on your responsibilities not your expectations. Leave the expectations in God's court and be happy with the results. But those rights that we all look for are generated only when responsibilities, responsibilities are met by those around us. So that in a marriage, if the husband is a good husband and a husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church and Christ gave his life for the church, so husbands are to love their wives in a manner that is inestimably marvelous. And the love that a husband has for his wife becomes the right and privilege of that marriage. But if the husband fails to love his wife, then the wife's right to the happiness and security of knowing her husband loves her is missing in her life. Do you see how that rights only come when others fulfill their responsibilities around us. If a God-fearing man marries a woman, 
And he knows that this woman is to live in submission to his authority. And he administers that authority in a godly way because the Bible tells him, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. So every husband is under headship. He has to please the one that is over him. And it's not easy for any husband to answer to Jesus Christ, his head. That keeps every husband humbled. Amen? But it assures the wife that if her husband is making an honest, God-fearing effort to be a good Christian man and leader in her life and for her children, then this becomes her security. It becomes the, the whole world that she is, is living in, in the security of knowing that her husband not only loves her, but that he's bound to try and be a good leader. So both the husband and the wife reciprocally enjoy rights from one another. But both of the husband and the wife are being blessed only and solely because of those who keep their responsibility in a marriage or in a family. Every child grows up in a home, has responsibilities to be fulfilled. And their rights and privileges in that family are based on responsibility. Children are taught early in life in a family that they are responsible for certain things. They're responsible for making their bed, for cleaning their room or emptying the trash, or feeding animals, or whatever else is assigned to them. They have responsibilities to fulfill, and they grow up and they understand that their rights and privileges are derived not on a platter, not by just someone handing them a blessing, but because they fulfill their responsibility then they will have privileges or rights that will come by way of responsibilities accomplished. So the idea, responsibilities might be termed the law. The, the rights are derived from the fulfillment of the responsibilities, and that is how love is measured out. So I would love to have the congregation think real quickly about this. Rights are blessings that are derived from the fulfilled responsibilities of those around us. Responsibilities are the duties that God has given us in law, God's book of truth. We know what our responsibilities as husbands are. We can read it in the Bible. God tells us what to do. When we fulfill those responsibilities, all those around us are blessed with rights and privileges of living under our headship. And everyone that is under the headship of a godly father, husband, will derive blessings from the sheer fact that he's fulfilling his responsibilities. So rights do not just happen. Rights come through obedience and a worldview that is biblical, that is Christian, and is one that requires us to live out our responsibilities in this world. It requires devotion, dedication. It requires sacrifice. But the very sacrifices 
and the work involved is what gives meaning to our life. It's derived, it, from that fulfilled responsibility, we are deriving meaning and value for life. We have the highest suicide rate in the Western world among young men between the age of 20 and 40 in the Western world today. And it's largely because young men grow up without knowing how to find meaning and fulfillment in their life. They are not trained as children to fulfill responsibilities and the, the simple fact of a young man who knows how to make his bed every morning and to make it so that it looks good to his mother, acceptable to his mother, that's the beginning of responsibility for that young man. To pick up his clothes. Those are the little teeny beginnings of learning to live a responsible life. And responsibility brings inner contentment. It brings the sense of satisfaction of knowing that there is a purpose, a meaning, a direction for you in your life. And it's to fulfill the responsibilities for which God created you. So very early in life, gender becomes important. Little girls know they're going to grow up to be mothers, to care for little children. And they have a mindset that prepares them for that as they help and assist their mother with the domestic affairs of their household. The same is true for little boys. They emulate what their father does and they grow up to know that responsibility is a part of what life is. That life is not simply living, but it's living with responsibility that has been carved out and particularly by the law. Now, I do not know if I can do this, but now I'm defining rights as the blessings, privileges derived from the fulfilled responsibilities of those around you. That's what your rights are. So, I'm defining responsibilities as the duties that God gives us in His Word under law. And I'm defining love as the benefits that come from the application of God's law in fulfilled responsibilities becomes the grace and the love of God that's showered upon our lives. The expectations, I'm, I'm saying that our expectations belong to God. Because if I'm in a marriage... And one of the two people in this marriage are not fulfilling their responsibility. I don't spend all my time chiding them about unfulfilled responsibilities. I examine my own life and I begin to examine how I relate to that other married party. So if I'm, if I'm the man and I'm fulfilling my responsibility, I'm going to be doing everything I can in the right way under God's law and leave the expectation of, what, of how my wife is going to respond. I'm going to leave it in God's court because I'm going to trust my Father and my God to convict the, the heart of my wife to know that I am trying to be a noble, good, and godly husband. But I'll let God receive the glory for what happens. If you would be so kind now, 
to turn in your Bible to the book of St. Matthew, the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter number 22. In the Bible, in the, in the story of an event in the life of Jesus, we're in Matthew 22, verse 34. Let's read together. Thank you, boys and girls, everyone. Let's read from Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. There is no greater statement in the Bible than to consider that all the law and all the prophets are hanging on two commandments. And I'd like you to think about it. The first and the great commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, all thy soul, with all thy mind. That's the first requirement. Now, under Puritan thinking, under biblical thinking, there is no greater aspiration for any one of us than to love God with all of our heart. All of our mind, all of our soul, everything about us to love God is the highest priority of life. But this second command, love thy neighbor as thyself. Love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law, the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All 613 Bible laws are hanging on the first two commands. All the words of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, all the way to Malachi, hanging on these two commands. I stand corrected if I'm wrong, but I believe that the way you look at these two commands in relationship to the Ten Commandments is the Ten Commandments are in two tables. And we know that is true. The Ten Commandments, as originally written by the finger of God, are in two tables. They are in two tables, and I believe that each of the tables contain five commandments. Each of the two tables. Now, they'll, that would gender up an argument with some. But I believe that you will find they were in two tables. So I want you to visualize how this works. That is, rights, responsibilities, expectations through the lenses of the Ten Commandments. Because love and law are married together in keeping the Ten Commandments. You cannot love God and not love His law. You cannot say by any means that you love God and deny the law who is part of God. To deny the laws, to deny God. So let's go to Exodus. Real quickly. We don't have a lot of time, so let's just do this real quickly. In Exodus chapter number 20, we have the first delivery of the Ten Commandments to Moses, who spake the same words that God gave him <clears throat> to the children of Israel. 
So in Exodus chapter 20, can we all turn there quickly? Thank you. Everyone should have their Bible open to Exodus 20. Please, let's do this together. I'm in Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. Now, if we fulfill our responsibility to this commandment, there will be nothing in our lives, listen carefully, there will be nothing in our lives that could be defined as idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is the first and most grievous of all sin because it is putting an idol in front of God. The idol becomes the priority, not God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That would mean, church, that if I'm fulfilling that command in my family life as a husband, I have earned a paycheck but my responsibility as a husband is to fulfill the obligations under God's law to my family. So I have no right at all to run out and spend part of my paycheck on something frivolous, like stopping by and imbibing in alcohol. That is money that should be appropriated to those that I love, not myself. The moment we place anything in life above the responsibilities to, that we owe to others becomes a problem. So I have, with limited funds as a husband, I might like to have me a shiny new automobile, but it would mean that my family would suffer because of my selfishness. So a good husband will be refrained in the way that he spends his money, his hard-earned money. Every part of life is influenced by how we prioritize our lives, and we can very quickly move out of the first, uh, just we can simply miss God's point at the starting point of life. We can prioritize things about our life that is in clear violation of God's law. You do not have to go out here and bow down before an idol to be in violation of commandment number one. All you need to do is place something that is in your life that's more important to you than God. Whatever that might be. It could be recreation. It could be videos. It could be a cell phone. It could be anything. Your time is part of God's gift to you. How you allocate that time might determine if God receives his fair share. When we observe a godly Sabbath, we are fulfilling commandment number one. We're devoting part of our time, choice time, mornings to the, to the worship of God. I think we would be very much in error if we met here at four o'clock this afternoon for a service because God wants the priority of everything. God wants the prime. He wants the best. So we give him early in the morning. We give him the best that we have. Now we could run all the way through these first five commandments. The next one is thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Nor... For any, or any likeness of anything that is heaven above, 
in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And that's a solemn statement. You see what God is saying? That he will visit the sins of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who do not love God. But look at verse number six. Showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Do you know that parents who bring their children faithfully to a Sabbath service are going to bless future generations through your obedience? A generational theology is one in which people fulfilling their obligation under God's law are showing true love to their own offspring and to the future of unborn generations. The Bible tells us that Levi paid tithes while still in the loins of his father, of his many times over great-grandfather Abraham. Levi, while yet in his father's loins, was credited with Abraham's obedience. Isn't that a marvelous thought? It's in Hebrews chapter 7 of the New Testament. Now, without going into detail, every one of these first five commandments are the vertical relationship between us and our Father in heaven. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. So what is our responsibility under commandment number three? What is, what is the area of responsibility? <clears throat> because to the degree that we meet the responsibilities of commandment number three, everybody around us are going to be blessed with rights, privileges that come from fulfilled responsibility. Well, number one, if we honor the oaths that we make, the vows, the pledges, the promises, when we honor those sacred areas of life, we are fulfilling our responsibility to a holy God. We're not taking his name in vain. When we make a vow, swear to an oath, we are promising God that this is what we will do. If we break that promise, then everybody around us will not be blessed. They will suffer. But if those promises, pledges, oaths, vows are preserved, and the integrity of those promises are preserved, then everyone that is under the headship of that person, that we'll say in this case a father, is going to receive all kinds of rights because of the obedience of that father. That means that children growing up under that headship will not experience husbands and wives divorcing. They're going to keep their promise. They will keep the oaths, the covenantal vows that are made. So you see that Every right is derived from someone's responsibility being fulfilled. That was Puritan law and love applied. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Commandment number four. Remember the Sabbath day. The word remember just simply tells us, hey, this one, 
this, this law, this commandment has been around a long time. Just remember what's already been given. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord God <clears throat> made heaven and earth. Didn't say in six million years, in ten million years, in a hundred million years ago. No, in six days the Lord Jehovah made heaven and earth, the sea and all that therein is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Every time we keep a Sabbath, we're driving a nail into the coffin of evolution. Every Sabbath day celebrates the creation of the world. It drives evolution out of our lives. The simple idea of that's one of the benefits of the Sabbath. Can you imagine all the blessings of those who live under a Sabbath-keeping father? Look at the blessings children receive under a Sabbath-keeping father. When the children of Israel lived in slavery in Egypt, the Pharaoh was worried that they might start keeping the Sabbath, so he increased their workload. When we fulfill our responsibilities under God's law, we have freedom. We're free to keep the Sabbath today. It's a blessing. Wonderful blessing. The last, the last of the five, first five, thou, or correction, I'm in verse 12, Exodus 20, 12, honor thy father and mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now this is the first commandment with the promise of longevity. That your days may be long upon the earth. So how are we going to be blessed by a Sabbath observing family. Typically, we're going to be blessed in successful, with a successful life. I could turn to Ephesians chapter 1, correction, Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2, and observing the Sabbath is tied to longevity. On average, Sabbath-keeping people in Loma Linda, California, a section of California with lots and lots of Sabbath believers, they live on average 10 years longer than the native population of California. Studies have validated that. Sabbath-keeping equals longevity. Now, you know that the rest of the table of the Ten Commandments here is found in the rest of these commandments. But in closing, I want to do something so that this will be a lasting thought in your mind. Open your Bible to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 13. And we'll finish this lesson real quickly by turning to Romans 13. And I want to thank everyone that's opening your Bible to Romans 13. Thank you, thank you to each of you. In Romans 13, let's begin at verse 8. Are you ready? Romans 13, verse 8, Together owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Do you see how love and law are being married together there? Let's read verse 9. Now, beginning in verse 9, 
we are going to have the table, the second table of the Ten Commandments. Here they are. The second table of the Ten Commandments, commandment number six through ten, will be found in one verse of the New Testament. Here they are. Let's read it together. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We'll end at verse 10. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Can anyone please tell me if I'm wrong that the Bible joins love and law together as harmonious neighbors? We cannot have love without law, nor can there be the application of Law in the absence of love. They are co-joined together. Now, as you leave here today, let's pick one of the last five of the Ten Commandments. One of those commandments says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Are we all neighbors? Well, there's, there's roughly 18 or 20 households within two minutes of this building. But there's 35 or 40 within a few more minutes. So I'd say that anybody that's close to reasonably close, is a neighbor. You and I, you and I are under obligation not to bear a false testimony against our neighbor. And our neighbor, I think for all purposes of discussion, can be anyone here today. So if I here, the reputation of my neighbor being tarnished, do not, do not I have an obligation? Not to participate in that discussion. I am responsible, beloved, as a member of this body for the reputation of everyone here. And if there's someone here that is doing something notorious, it is my duty, it is your duty, in a God-fearing manner to appropriate Galatians chapter number 6. Brethren, if there be anyone among you that has committed a fault, Go to that brother, go to that sister with meekness and humbleness, with the idea of restoring them, not judging them, restoration, not judgment, and making the problem find a solution. But I have no, no authority whatever to, to tarnish the reputation or diminish the reputation of anyone. Everyone here, if everyone fulfills their responsibility under commandment, I believe it's number seven, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Am I right on that? Everyone that lives here and is upholding the reputation of their neighbor lives in the security of knowing that they are being protected by all the people that love them. And if someone is doing something wrong, that someone will come and rescue them from their plight. Now what about thou shalt not commit adultery? 
When a wife lives in security in the marriage knowing that that's never going to happen, when the husband lives in the security of that, think of the blessings that will come. The rights of secure, security in your marriage, that right, which is a blessing, a privilege, comes from fulfilled responsibility of the trust that a husband and wife vest in each other. To be faithful unto death, shall we stand?